Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Bastards of Boston Baseball. Kind of a change in pace tonight. I had a special guest on the show. He is a detective with the Tulsa Police Department in the Homicide Division, also a lifelong Red Sox fan. His name is Lieutenant Brandon Watkins. Uh, had some technical difficulties, so I'm actually going to stream the interview uh, over from YouTube and basically play it for you on this feed. So hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, you know, just kind of filling time as uh, we wait for opening day. Uh, just a couple of notes uh, before I do click play on this. Uh, Justin Turner going to have his 16 stitches taken out in a couple of weeks um, Alex Cora uh, is not sure whether he will be ready for opening day at this point, but it's not off the table. Tanner Houck pitched on Tuesday much better than his previous outing, much better command, struck out four. So uh, all is good on the Red Sox front. Uh, WBC started, but uh, here we go. Going to get the interview started here with uh, Lieutenant Watkins. With that aside, uh, like I said, a very different episode. It's probably going to be just me kind of more geeking out. One of my favorite shows to watch in the off season is The First 48. That's kind of a reality TV show, which kind of tags along with a lot of homicide units across the country. One of the units uh, featured uh, quite often in the last five or six years is the uh, Tulsa homicide unit. And uh, with me tonight is Lieutenant Brandon Watkins, who basically uh, kind of runs that unit. He's also a lifelong Red Sox fan. So again, thank you for joining us. For the listening audience, I've had some technical difficulties I've had to sort out. So appreciate his patience. So go ahead, Brandon. Why don't you tell us before we get into your career, um, what is the, the first 48 and, and what's it like kind of working with them as you guys are handling your normal day-to-day, -day, uh, business? Well, I, you basically nailed it. It's a, uh, reality television show where, uh, crews fall around, uh, real homicide detectives doing real investigations basically from the moment we get the phone call that a murder's happened until, until we make an arrest. Um, they've been following us now for seven or eight years. I want to say we're the longest, uh, tenured show in the history of it. And it's been going on, I don't know, 20 years or so. And I think we now have been in more episodes than anybody else, uh, any other department that's been involved. So I like to say it's cause we're really good at solving homicides in Tulsa. You are really good. And I was actually going to mention that a little later, but since you brought it up, uh, very impressively, you guys have solved 95% of your 2022 homicides. And according to NPR, the average solve rate across the country is only 64.1%. So you guys are, are the goats of solving homicide and, and goat is if you're unfamiliar with it is the acronym for greatest of all time. <laughs> so it's just really impressive. What, 
what makes you guys so good at that? Well, I, I think in Tulsa, we have a lot going right. Um, I mean, we've got really amazing detectives. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. These guys work. Uh, I mean, they don't shirk a task. They are out at two o'clock in the morning. They don't go to bed until it could be two days before they actually, you know, sit down and take some rest because they're very committed to it. Uh, we have a good district attorney's office. I mean, I don't know if you're aware Oklahoma, or at least our part of Oklahoma became an Indian reservation a couple of years ago. So now we have to work a lot with the federal government. And the more I work with the feds, the more I appreciate our district attorney. Um, <laughs> There, uh, we have a great community in Tulsa. I mean, there, people talk to us. We don't have a problem talking to people and getting them to talk to us. I mean, even in you know areas that normally they're a little reticent to talk to us, they they still they still do to at least my unit. And I think that's in large part to the first forty-eight. I mean, they kind of show that we care that we're out there busting our butts for everybody. I don't care if you're a homeless man who's been murdered or the richest person in Tulsa, we're out. We're giving the same amount of effort for everybody. We we genuinely care and we want to solve these murders. So you've been a lifelong Red Sox fan, and we're going to be getting into that uh, in the later part of the episode. But uh, when did your career begin in law enforcement? In 1997, I was a uh, newspaper reporter uh, for about four or five years after college. And I was kind of bored. My best friend was a police officer. Uh, you know, I would go and I'd work out in the mornings with him and, and I was around to all these other police officers and I just kind of liked them. I thought they were, they were funny. They were pretty cool. And, and, uh, and I was getting bored with what I did. I didn't, I wasn't enjoying myself. And I thought, well, I'll try this for a little while. Maybe I can get a book out of it or, you know, become the next great American author. 25 years later, there's no book, but I've had a great career. And so take us through like what, like what types of work? I mean, you probably started in patrol and then probably, you know, moved up through the ranks. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody starts in patrol. Um, and I love patrol. I, I really had no plans on ever leaving patrol. Um, it's, you're always the first person through the door you're always the first person at every scene, no matter how awful it is, you're, you're the guy there handling it as it, as it happens. Um, then I started making the mistake of promoting. And once I promoted, I, I, a lot of your ability to control where you're going and who you're working with is gone. And I was stuck on midnights for three years and I'm just not a midnights person. I, I need my sleep. When the, when the lights go out outside, they go out and, my bedroom too. I'm, I should be in bed now. Um, <laughs> that being said, after a little while, I kind of got the itch, you know, everybody kind of wants to go to detective division at some point. And as a supervisor, it's really hard to get into detective division. Um, what I ended up doing is I took a job nobody else wanted, uh, in the burglary unit, uh, burglary, I had like nine detectives. We worked 16,000 cases a year and it was overwhelming. I mean, and when I walked in, those guys were beat down, they were worn out, they were tired. Um, and I kind of changed the focus of how we were doing things. Uh, instead of working individual burglaries, we started working suspects. Uh, man, we had a great time. We were doing, you know, stuff like putting deer stands up in trees uh, over a parking lot so we could catch people breaking into cars. Uh, we were running 
all kinds of, I mean, we did a lot of stuff that didn't work. We did a lot of stuff that did work, but it kind of got me a little bit of notice on the department that, you know, the, this is not a unit that's sitting behind its desk. Like most detectives, we were out running and gunning and having a good time. And when Dave Walker uh, decided to take the homicide unit, I moved into his spot in robbery and I worked in armed robbery for the next seven years while Dave was in homicide. And then when Dave retired from homicide, I, I took his spot there. So you, you went, did you go into homicide as a, as a sergeant? Uh, technically, yeah, as a sergeant, but while I've been in there, they, they've restructured the department. Um, they gave us basically a name change. All the sergeants became lieutenants and all the corporals became sergeants. So okay. it's, it didn't come with any extra money, but it came with a title that seems like more people are impressed with the title than it really deserves. Okay. I, and I was in doing some research. I, I noticed that Justin Ritter uh, is now a Lieutenant as well. Um, and Corporal Schilling, like you said, is now a Sergeant, I guess, because of the restructuring. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah I, Justin. I, I, Oh, Justin ahead. actually took over the robbery unit. Um, he is oh. he is running robbery right now, and I would say whenever I retire, I would my guess is he'd be the odds-on betting favorite to take over the homicide spot. Do, do you think he misses uh, being in the homicide unit, or, or do you um, think he's really enjoying what he's doing? You know, I, I think he's enjoying what he's doing. I mean, okay. he's 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 really he's good at what he's doing. I mean, he. Justin is probably the best detective I, I think I've ever been around. Maybe him or Ronnie Leatherman, uh, those two guys. And then there was a guy back in burglary that he didn't want. He didn't want all the hoopla, but he was an amazing detective. Um, you know, they're uh, those guys are you know a cut above, and Justin's doing a great job over in robbery. So okay, yeah, eventually he'll. I would hope that he'd take my spot whenever I you know punch out. It just seems to me like, and I've seen other detectives and other agencies on the show. It just seems like for some being the homicide in that unit is like the pinnacle, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of treated that way. You want to be, I, I want those guys to know that. I mean, this is, it's a hard unit to get into. It's a, it takes a lot out of you. I mean, you, you know, you go weeks and weeks and weeks of not getting a lot of sleep. Uh, you have to give up, you know, going to your family stuff, you know, when you're on call and you're the next one up to get a homicide, uh, you just have to give up a lot. And, you know, I want those guys to know that the, the, what they do is appreciated and what they do matters. I mean, it was, we were chasing people in burglary and they get a year or two, you know, if we really were able to hammer them, uh, in prison and, um, you know, now we're dealing with life and death every day. And so, yeah, the, the, the magna uh, the magnifying lens on these guys is amazing they just are they're everything they do is under a microscope so uh yeah it's 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 kind of the pinnacle of the job it's uh you know they don't they don't make a whole lot of television shows about fraud and forgery it, there's just no no glamour or suspense in that unless you're you know you know one of the more famous people but um so how many how many homicide detectives do you have in your unit? Currently, I have 10. 
uh, detectives, and then I have two sergeants. It would be Nathan Schilling and uh, uh, Jeremy Stiles. Now, Jeremy is back in cold case, but he comes out and basically works every fresh case with us as well. Okay. That's interesting because, I mean, over the years, and you, you've had people come and go, um, but it, so it seems like the show basically has featured everyone that's that's you know been a detective in your unit just about yeah it uh the shelf life on these detectives is, are not real long i mean it they uh the pressure is pretty intense and it kind of stays on it there's only so many times you can knock on somebody's door to tell them that their loved one is dead before it really starts to to wear at your soul um so you know we go through a lot of people uh you know chase calhoun was on the show for a while he promoted uh justin promoted um you had several people quit you know matt frazier quit and uh i'm so pumped about that yeah well his dad was a yankee so you can always uh (laughs) hold that against him now, Matt worked for me in robbery. Usually the progression on the department is you work in robbery and then you go on to homicide. And Matt worked with me for ro- in robbery. Justin worked for me in robbery. Um, John Brown did a little bit. But, um, you know, these guys, these guys were just always really, really good. But, you know, you get pushed long enough, you kind of want to break and you want to get away from it. it. It does seem like you have to basically accept it as your life, you know, to, to work that. Because, I mean... I mean, is it true that some of these guys, I mean, is it uncommon for them to be working 24 hours straight, you know, on a new case that's like constantly developing and, and, you know, what have you? No, it's, it's very common for that to happen. Uh, One of the nice things that we do in Tulsa, and another reason I think we've been successful over the years um, is that, you know, when I get the call, I'll call two detectives in, usually the lead detective and whoever their backer is or whoever's up to be their backer. Uh, we all go in and as it starts unfolding and more work starts happening, I start calling more people in. And then whenever people come in during the regular shifts, they just jump in and start working. So you basically will have all 10 people or 12 people total uh, working one homicide and they could go, it could go 24 or 48 hours. People are just working you constantly. You know, we've got a little couch that when you're worn out to the point, you go lay down on that couch and take a little nap and then you get back up and you go right back at it. That's, that's commitment. That's the sacrifice that you were just describing. And I, I so you kind of answered one of my next questions. I, I was just wondering, like, so if a lead detective, you know, is next up, like how long will pass before he's then, you know, the lead detective on the next case? Sounds like it could be several days. Oh, it's, it could be quite a while. Uh, we yeah. have 10 detectives. Uh, we're going through this really nice outbreak of peace, love and understanding in Tulsa. It's just been really, really slow for us. Um, and so these guys are getting the first break since I've been in there coming on five years now. And it's the first real break. Some of these guys are getting uh, now we've got, two or three new detectives and hopefully they don't think that this is what it's like, but, uh, you know, when, when it starts jumping, yeah, it's, um, it, it's pretty intense. And the city of Tulsa typically has what around 70 per year. Is that what I read? Yeah. 65 to 70. I mean, we've gone up to 82 
or so. Last year, it looked like we were going to hit a record, and then in October, it just slowed down, and it was wonderful. Do you think that could have been maybe due to the pandemic, things were open again, and, you know, off to the races? <laughs> I really wish that I had a good, I've been asked that a million times, and oh, okay. I, I just don't know. I mean, I, I would, I wish I did know. I mean, maybe I would make more money than I do now, having that kind of answer. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I was just curious. I mean, that was a, you know, a trying time for everyone. Um, all right. So before we move on to the baseball, um, I've got a, perhaps the toughest question for you and, but it's hypothetical though. So if like the homicide of the century happened in Tulsa and only two detectives were going to work it, who, who are you going with? Who are you calling? Uh, I'll give you my squad or guys that have been forever. I've been there for a long time. All right. I'll tell you what, as for as long as you've been on the show, for as long as I've been on the show, guys that I've worked with, I think Ronnie Leatherman, um, without a doubt, uh, Ronnie, Ronnie, I wish you could, if you could clone Ronnie and make 10 of them, it would be perfect. Cause he just, he never gets upset. He never gets worked up. I mean, he is always just plods away and is super smart. He just does a fantastic job. Um, man, Max Ryden is another one that I, I love Max Ryden. I mean, I've worked with him for years. Um, he and I worked together in burglary. Then we worked together in robbery and, and now homicide. Max just works at this rapid fire rate and, and it, he does a great job. It's really hard to say who that second person was. Justin was a, a, probably the best detective I've ever worked around. Uh, Jason White. Jason White lives and breathes this stuff. It would be difficult, you know, not to choose Jason. But I think I would start with Ronnie and almost any one of these guys could fill in as that second person. So, yeah, I'm not choosing the second one. Okay. I'll tell you who my favorite two are. And, you know, you see way more and, you know, can consider a lot more than I can because I'm just seeing what's on TV. But I really like Jason White and John Brown. Uh, for yeah. some reason, it just seems like they get the most uh, information uh, out of it, at least from the cases I've seen on TV. It just seems like th they get a lot of information, whether it's a suspect or a witness that, you know, perhaps saw something. I, I don't know. I just it's just really cool to watch them work on TV. You're not wrong. Uh, both of them are fantastic. Uh, honestly, you don't get to be in homicide unless you're just a notch above. Um, you know, Jason, Jason has just this knack of talking to people and, and, you know, he, he enjoys it. He eats this stuff up. He lives for homicide. Um, you know, he's been doing it, him and Mark Kennedy have been doing it longer than anybody else in the, in the unit. I don't know how they've done it as long as they have. Um, but they're just fantastic. And, and John, John is just I, I can't say enough good about John. He just is a worker. He just goes and works. And John likes to argue. Uh, that's one of his pastimes and his favorite things is he will argue. He will take the opposite of whatever it is. And it's really, really valuable because you kind of get group think going on. John will be the person to go outside the group and, and argue the other way. And he's, yeah, again, these guys are fantastic. Mark Kennedy is another one not to sleep on, you know, big jug headed, goofy looking guy. He, uh, he has not had an unsolved murder since 2014. So he's, wow. he's coming on 10 years. And, and 
you know, Justin Ritter, when I first came in, told me Mark's cases are touched by God, said just weird stuff happens and he, you know, his murders get solved. He had a murder uh, last year, a year before last, where all we had was a uh, Hispanic male named Juan was a suspect and Juan had a cold sore on his lip. That's it. There's the only identifiers. And I'm going, well, this one's not getting solved. You know, this is, you know, the only thing, the only hope that I had that it was, a, it was a Mark Kennedy case. And sure enough, the next day, a guy was caught stealing beer out of a, a local convenience store. And uh, he had, he tells, he tells the security guard at the uh, store to stay back. I've already killed somebody. Uh, I've just killed somebody. And the guy kind of kept him there. And it was a Hispanic male named Juan with a cold sore on his lip. And wow. <laughs> it was just like, well, that's a Mark Kennedy case in a nutshell right there. So. I was actually going to bring him up because um, just by, again, I, I'm only seeing what's on the show. He seems like he's the most intimidating of all of them. Like, for whatever reason, he's just he's just extremely strong in the interviews and he, he comes, he comes off like a tough guy. And I was seeing a rerun of one episode recently and his case had nothing to do with the show. He wasn't the lead detective. I don't think he was in the show until this part. And I think it was Ritter and someone else were walking past one of the interview rooms and you caught a glimpse of Kennedy in there just screaming and just lighting into whoever it was. And I was like, yeah, if I if I was ever in the wrong chair in that room, I wouldn't want Kennedy to be sitting across from me. <laughs> Mark, Mark knows when it's time for that. And he knows when it's time to, you know, be nice. Mark, we say there's two Marks. There's Mark with a K and Mark with a C and Mark with a K is, you know, Mark smash, you know, goes in, yells at people and, and uh, you know, kind of, kind of bulls up. Mark with a C is sweet. Um, and we had a guy that would not talk to John Brown. It was John and somebody else. He would not talk no matter what. He just wouldn't say a word. Mark went in there, held the guy's hand and, you know, just got nose to nose with him and talked to him really softly. And the guy just spilled his guts to Mark and wow. like, well, it's sweet Mark. I not seen sweet Mark. That's pretty nice. <laughs> That's yeah, he's definitely um, one of my favorites to watch as well. Just just the, the psychology and everything. It's just, I I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if some of those suspects and even some of the witnesses are just scared to death just being in there. And, you know, I'm, I, he does what he does to, to get, you know, all the advantages that, that you've probably uh, mentioned. So. Um, yeah, I hope he, I hope he doesn't retire. He has to stay on the show. All three of those guys. Yeah. have. To they're, uh, Mark and, and John are probably pretty close. Are um, they? they're, they're getting really close to 35 years and I think they both plan on leaving right around 35 years. So, um, you know, Max and I are close to the same class. I've probably got another four years left in me and he thinks he's going to try to go six, but who knows if we're going to do it in homicide. That's a long time to, to, to do this. This is no way to live. I, I don't doubt it. Cause like I said, yeah. I mean, it, it just seems like it's, it just never ends and, and it's unpredictable. You don't know what the next 48, 72 hours are going to be. And uh, you don't know what the next five minutes are going to be. It's, it's, true. it's you know, <laughs> You go to bed and you go, oh, okay, we had a murder this morning. We're not going to get a call tonight. I'm going to sleep fine. And sure enough, 
you know, 3 a.m. rolls around and, you know, you've had another one. So you're getting up and going. Yeah, I, I couldn't imagine. Um, all right. So let's let's shift gears here. Um, I we went a few minutes in on another take before I had some uh, issues with the equipment. But you're, you're always seen on the show, you know, well, most of the time, I should say with uh, a Red Sox lanyard. And that's, that's how I, that's how I kind of reached out to you. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta find out who he is and, and get him on here. And, um, you've been a, a Red Sox fan your whole life. Yeah, correct. I, uh, my earliest memory of baseball, uh, my grandparents would watch baseball constantly. They, they, if doesn't matter who was playing, they would watch the game when, and I would go over to my grandparents' house in the seventies. And my first real memory of baseball is the 1975 uh, World Series. I'm over at my grandparents' house and Carlton Fisk hits the home run. And my grandmother goes, shit, which I've never, never heard her cuss before. So I was immediately intrigued and, you know, was kind of looking up. And of course, it was crazy. The crowd was screaming and, you know, he's running down the line, throwing his hands and, and willing that ball to be fair. And, and, um, my grandparents were both Reds fans because Johnny Bench played for the Reds. Johnny Bench was an Oklahoma boy, so they liked him. But I just decided from then on that was my team was the Red Sox. First, uh, the first uh, baseball card pack that I opened had Jim Rice on the top. And I thought, I thought well, that's just a further sign that I need to be a Red Sox fan. And, uh, you know, we were all baseball crazy when I was a kid. Uh, you know, small town Oklahoma in the 70s wasn't wasn't much going on and so everybody just lived and breathed baseball but back then they were either a dodger fan or a yankees fan and i uh i think i just kind of like being the odd man out you know just being this you know dorky kid from oklahoma who loved uh, a team that nobody else knew anything about well, you just mentioned one of the most iconic home runs in the history of the franchise, and it's you know it's been talked about in movies, uh, probably most notably with Robin Williams and Matt Damon and Goodwill Hunting. Uh, if you've seen that movie, um, yeah, that was huge. And um, you mentioned you were also a big Carl, uh, no, excuse me, uh, Carl Yastrzemski fan as well. Yeah. Yes. Um... Again, you know, another thing when I got old enough to kind of start appreciating, I played baseball and and like everybody in in my small town did, and you know, you you watched him swing a bat and it was just amazing. I mean, it was just beautiful the way he could swing, the way it just looked different than any other player, and and I wanted to recreate that. Of course, I was a right-handed batter and I I couldn't, but I just I loved to watch the man bat. I loved to watch the man hit, and you know. Years later, I found out, you know, he he doesn't do any anything with fans or he doesn't do it. He just you, they bring him a bucket of balls and he signs them. doesn't like dealing with people. And I thought, I, I think I love him even more. <laughs> yeah, his grandson is uh, an outfielder with the San Francisco Giants. And I hope before his career is over, uh, he plays at least one season in Boston. I mean, it would just be oh, that so would be amazing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> The Red Sox haven't had a great uh, outfield uh, in in recent years, especially after trading Mookie Betts, and they signed uh, you know a kid from Japan who 
seems to have a lot of hype behind him, but I'd love to have a, a guy like uh, Yastrzemski uh, in the outfield. So wh- you mentioned, again, the the 75 World Series there with Fisk, and obviously 1986, 11 years later. Which one was more painful as a fan? Because I was only three years old in 1986, so I didn't. I don't have any firsthand, you know, horror memories of that. Well, I was only five whenever the the Red Sox lost to the Reds. Um, and again, I don't think I really understood it. It was no big deal to me. It's just, I like the Red Sox, and that's just who I was going to stick with. 86 ruined me. Um, 86 was just painful. You In Oklahoma, you didn't get to see a whole lot of Red Sox games. And so, you know, I'm all out beating my chest, telling everybody what a great huge Red Sox fan I was, which mostly just meant I collected ball cards and had a lot of Red Sox baseball cards and would watch them any opportunity that, that they were on television, which was not very often in Oklahoma. Um, so 86, I was just all in and just, you know, loving every second of it. Loved that team. I mean, it, it uh, everything about 86 just seemed magical. And then, you know, uh, then it happened, and I uh, I remember watching the ball roll between Buckner's legs, and just just being depressed for about the next four years. Um, I it just it just tore me up, and I never I never was upset at Buckner. I always was angry at Calvin Schiraldi. Threw away all my Calvin Schiraldi cards, um, even when he played for the Cubs. I wouldn't carry I keep them. So I just, I thought, nah, Buckner had played a heroic series after that. He was hurt the whole series and he was trying and yeah, you know, he's going to be remembered that for that forever. But uh, I personally never blamed him, but it was a painful, painful thing. Yeah. And it, it seemed like the, you know, there had already been some blunders, you know, before the ball rolled through, through Buckner's legs and, Red Sox had plenty of opportunities to, you know, to win that game and it didn't happen. And I've always been sympathetic with, with Buckner myself, but granted I, you know, I wasn't watching that game live either, but yeah, I I've said this on the podcast before my, my grandmother was born in 1918, the year they had last won it before Oh four and unfortunately passed away in 2002. So, um, mm-hmm. You know, never, never quite got to see it. 86 was probably as close as it got, but, um, but yeah, so having seen four championships, I, I definitely feel, uh, fortunate. I've got one story for you and you'll probably find it hilarious. And I've never shared this with the audience before, probably cause it's really embarrassing, but let me just preface it by saying baseball wasn't my first sport. You know, I was very fair weather as a kid. And then early 2000s, um, I, I had been a boxing fan previously. A lot of my favorite boxers had retired. And, you know, that's kind of how I gravitated towards uh, baseball. But um, I was a bellboy at a, um, a semi-fancy hotel uh, in Portland, Maine. And I, I got called to the front to assist this uh, couple with their bags. And... Um, the wife was probably looked to be about mid forties, very attractive lady, very chatty. Uh, the husband probably early fifties, very unassuming, very quiet. And so I, I was chatting more with the wife and we, I get their luggage on the bell cart. We walk across the lobby 
We're in the elevator and the door is closing. And my coworker at the front desk was staring at me, just like peering into my soul with this furious look on his face. And I'm like, what, what the hell is his problem? And uh, I get them up to their room. I get them all situated, make sure the temperature is good. You know, everything works, all that. And uh, if they need anything, come find me. And um, I go back down to the desk and I confront my coworker. And I'm like, dude, what is your problem? And he grabs me by that dumb jacket they used to make me wear. And he's shaking me back and forth. He goes, do you have any idea as to who that was? You were just helping. And I was like, um, actually, no, I, I don't know who that was. He said, that was Dwight Evans, right fielder wow. for the 1986. <laughs> <laughs> I'm up there oblivious as hell. And by that point, I'm, I'm pretty, you know, into being a Red Sox fan, but admittedly uh, not too strong on the history. So I don't tell that story too often. I potentially just told it to, to thousands of people. But um, but yeah, so I, I whiffed. That was my version of being Buckner and the ball going through my legs on that one because uh, I would have had some questions had I known who he was. But yeah, so uh, I think that'll about do it. Um, I, I didn't have anything else, and uh, I appreciate you taking the time, and uh, especially with a couple of glitches early on. But uh, I'm a huge fan of the show, and... Uh, I hope uh, everybody, you know, gives it a watch. Uh, actually, I do have one final question. Actually, I meant to ask you before: Is there any other departments on that show that that you uh, particularly admire? If you even get the chance to see them, you know, I, I hate to admit this, but I actually have never seen the show on television. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't okay. have cable. Um, I just. I mean, we watch. They, we'll have a screening where we make sure that there's nothing that's in the in the episode that's going to, uh, you know, like out one of our uh, witnesses, or if there's information that's coming out that that uh, doesn't really belong in there. That you know, we don't want to. We want to accidentally put somebody's social security number on uh, on television, and so that's the only time I actually ever see them. Um, my girlfriend, she watches them and she, she makes fun of me. Cause she said, all I do is stand in the background and kind of, <laughs> kind of look uh, confused. And, uh, but I, I'm a little more of a quieter presence than Dave Walker was. I try to stay back and, and let the, uh, let the detectives work the case. I'm just, it, it's just a difference of, uh, personality, I think there, but, uh, yeah, Walker, Walker was a, the hardest working person I think I've ever been around. So uh, I'm, I work hard, but I do it in a, in a quieter way. But, yeah. Um, I, I noticed he, for, for a while, he seemed like his presence was quieter. And then after a while, you'd actually see him in the, in the interview rooms, you know, helping out. Yeah. Uh, and all that. Yeah. And I, there was an episode that covered his uh, retirement as well. So kind of yeah. like i said i'm always sad to see them all go i i hated you mentioned matt frazier i was really bummed uh when he left but yeah walker uh whenever people come in they'll, they'll come in to visit or they'll come in to take a tour of the of, of our station and you know meet the guys and stuff and i always see the look of uh disappointment on people's face when i walk out and i'm not dave walker so <laughs> everybody loved dave Okay. That certainly makes a lot of sense. I was going to say, I really love the Atlanta uh, police department. They've got a couple of detectives, detective Quinn, detective uh, Velasquez, 
and uh, the New Orleans department was great, but um, they they don't cover them anymore. So, but yeah. uh, so for the listening audience, if you if you see those uh, departments too, they're definitely worth a watch. I'll tell you in a second when we're off the air too. I hate like automatic. I'm not watching the show <laughs> if uh, if it's one of those, but I don't want to obviously share that publicly. Uh, so yeah. again, appreciate you coming on. And uh, for the listening audience, we'll uh, we'll be back when uh, as things develop. Probably uh, no later than Sunday uh, at the furthest. So I uh, hope everybody enjoyed this. We don't we don't do it too often. So everyone uh, have a good uh, rest of your week. <laughs>